Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. All right, we are back. How are you doing? Hope everyone is doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, back with my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. What did you think about the past podcast I did alone with Luke Elliott? I thought that was very good. Yeah, yeah. And, and sorry to Luke if you're listening. Jeff said he was surprised in the podcast when I said I'm going to cut something out and I, I forgot to cut it out. So Jeff said if I make that mistake again, I'm fired. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't make that mistake again. We hope everyone is having a great day. As you can see, we are pumping out two podcasts a week now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're back on that uh, twice a week grind. So if you do like the work we're doing here, follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound. And if you do also appreciate it, give us a rating review. That goes a long way for Jeff and myself. Is that true? Yep. That is true. So today we're going to be talking about illiquid stocks. Mm -hmm. And obviously illiquid stocks is a main part of our firm's strategy. Um, And we have a question from somebody which I will read off and then we can kind of go from there. And he says, the following seems to be opportunity areas according to popular literature. And he lists about six different um, areas in in the stock market. He says, microcaps, spinoffs, deep value, cannibals, cloning, burnt IPOs. Mm Mm-hmm. Are there any other areas? And I thought it would be, and you thought it would be a good, uh, you know, good sort of segment into talking about illiquid stocks because obviously we think that is a good other area that people should um, should focus. And so maybe you could just sort of hit on it, and we can kind of go from there. I mean, I guess what drew you to illiquid stocks? That's such a main strategy, uh, a main component of our strategy with our firm. And why do you think people should focus more in this area? So I think illiquid stocks, even compared to all the things that he talked about in that um, question, uh, are probably the better performer. Um, And that's through experience of investing for a while, that you find better uh, businesses at lower prices for illiquid stocks. Uh, It's just you get, that's where you're going to find more of the obvious uh, bargains. Um, Microcaps are interesting. Um, I think a lot of the academic stuff on microcaps um, is also capturing a lot of um, value and uh, illiquid, actually. You know, that microcaps are, that a lot of what you see with microcaps, a lot of the good performance is really because they're illiquid microcaps or ones that are accounting for the good performance. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting too, and we obviously, on our website, Focus Compounding on the Invest With Us page, we have a study that is laid out from, I think, 2012. There's a most recent one out, like 2018, but it's like vanished from the internet. I found so many links where it says like, click here to get this. And Mm -hmm. I click it and it's just like, this page is... It doesn't but, exist but the anymore. It blew up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have the one. I mean, the, the numbers aren't that much of a difference. Right. So it, it's still incredibly relevant. But um, what's interesting is it, it goes from um, illiquid stocks to liquid stocks, and it goes from micro caps all the way up to like mega caps. Mm-hmm. And even across every asset size, illiquid still outperform more liquid stocks. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because the biggest thing in all of investing. We talk about like factors, right? Yeah. The big overriding factor of all of it is that unpopular stocks outperform popular stocks. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bunch of different things about, well, they break it down to value, size, momentum, all of this stuff. But really things that are less popular 
and are going to become more popular while you own them outperform things that are popular now because mm-hmm. those things are going to become less popular while you own them. Sure. So that that's the problem. I mean, that's how you make a lot of money is by investing in something that isn't very popular now and then other people discover it over time. Yeah, it's really buying into it when it's less liquid right. and then selling into it, I guess, when the liquidity it comes in the business. It becomes a lot, more liquid, a lot more liquid, yeah. Yeah. Why are these companies illiquid in the first place? Is that like how they sort of set up the business when they went public? They didn't issue as many shares? How does that process work? So sometimes that is why, but I've invested in stocks where that isn't the reason for it. Um, one is just... Uh, so if you were on exchange and you delisted, that will dry up liquidity a lot. Um, sometimes it is how it went public. So I have seen a few companies where that was the case where they didn't go public through a normal IPO process. So the shares ended up in the hands of people who were longer term holders of the stock. Um, and obviously insiders owning a lot of it can cause that to happen. Sometimes insiders can buy over time where the company can buy back stock also causing liquidity to dry up. I've seen a few stocks in the UK where 90 some percent is owned eventually by insiders. Um, and that was through a lot of times buying things while the company was public, the company buying back stock and the insiders buying back stock eventually dried up liquidity. Um, you know, there's other, there are other examples I've seen. We own one in the managed accounts, which through tender offers and things management brought their ownership from maybe about half the company eventually up to over 80% or something. So that dries up some liquidity. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you go about, I mean, is there a way to screen for illiquid stocks? How do you sort of go about doing that? So, yeah, anything where you can create your own screen. And I guess, sorry, sorry. Yeah. What do you consider illiquid? Maybe you'll play into okay. that. Okay, yeah, go yeah. For it. So what I consider illiquid is that the, uh, and I actually just wrote a letter to clients where I talked about this fact because we bought a stock that was um, very big, uh, by our standards, very big, you know, well over a billion dollars. And uh, so not a micro cap, but very illiquid compared to most micro caps, even though it's it's not a small stock. And I explained that, if you take the number of shares uh, traded on average in a day, uh, multiply it by, I said, just for the sake of doing this calculation, multiply it by 5 times 52. So five days a week of trading, 52 weeks in a year. That overstates how many actual trading days there are, but you get the idea. That's an idea of how many shares might trade in a year, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you do that and divide that into the number of shares outstanding, and it's a really low percentage, you have an illiquid stock. And if it's a really... Because the float doesn't turn over? Right, yeah. In that case, I'm just using shares as name, but you can mm-hmm. do it with the float too. Uh-huh. Um, so it doesn't turn over much. Uh, whereas with other companies, it would be a very high number. So I gave the example of like Apple and Facebook and things. I think Apple is 170% or something like that. It would be a good guess. In, in the year? Yeah. Got so it, much got turns it. over. Now, of course, it's in indexes and things. So, you know, it's, there's all sorts of complications for that. It's, it's not... Individual investors are not turning Apple over every seven months, I would guess. Mm-hmm. But there are different funds and high-frequency trading and things that are doing it very fast. So, yeah, the average share is turning over every seven months probably. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then... How do you sort of screen and go about finding illiquid stocks? So you want things um, 50% and under, but especially things of like, you know, that really stand out like single digits and things that really surprise you that way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's interesting as well how, um, do you feel like illiquid stocks, like their returns tend to be like geometrically a lot better over time as well if you just kind of sit and hold on or is that just the companies I've been looking at? The ones you've been looking at, yeah, <laughs> because we try to buy good stocks. Yeah, I mean, sure. that's what I talked about in that client letter is um, our first rule is it has to be an overlooked stock. Mm-hmm. But then our second rule is we'd like to own the best businesses 
that are overlooked. Yeah. We don't want to own Facebook may be a great business, but we don't want to own it because a lot of people are looking at Facebook. But we do try to own the best businesses that are really illiquid. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it affects the returns that they have that much. I mean, it might because there's some research on like how family controlled companies differ from other kind of companies and things like that. But it certainly affects um, beta and things like that volatility, especially over very short periods of time. It has unusual. Uh, behavior. I mean, we have, uh, there's like, for instance, there's a stock that we have. Uh, it's only one of all of them that probably has a slight negative correlation to the market. And it's unclear why that is at all. Um, cause actually the company's business is very correlated to the stock market. So it should have a high correlation, but probably because of things that have to do with the trading in the stock, the wide bid ask spread and things like that. It, uh, people don't seek to sell it on days when they want to raise money. Right. So the reason why a lot of stocks move together is because people use them as a source of funds on the same days. Right. And then use them to go into stocks generally on other days. So that would be explain a lot of the movement of stocks being the same for no other reason um, than just that people want to buy stocks today or they want to sell stocks and have more cash or bonds or whatever. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, sometimes illiquid stocks don't work that way. And it's probably because it's difficult for people to sell them you know, today and get cash for it. It's not the first thing they go to sell. Sure. What do you think about, is there like, if you, do you always check like the bid and ask? And if it's like mm-hmm. more than a dollar, is that something that you want to shy away from? Or does it not matter to you because you're just going to put a limit in anyways? Or how do you think wider, about that? The wider the bid ask spread. The so that's so against conventional <laughs> wisdom. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. But I would prefer the wider, the better the bid ask spread. Well, you know, because we place trades, first of all, that we aren't, if we want to buy a stock, we're putting it in, um, close to the bid, yeah. not close to the last trade or close to the ask. Yeah, yeah. It's not that relevant to us generally what the last trade was in a stock. So, I mean, maybe we, we want to explain what some of those terms are uh, to people. You know, I mean, sure. last trade would be the the thing that you think of as the stock price. Yeah. But in reality, at any moment, um, there's someone bidding. There's a lot of people bidding and a lot of people offering to sell. And yes. so, and which is the ask, the right. offers the ask, and yeah. the bid is people waiting it, to buy it up. Exactly. And so, when we talk about the bid and the ask, we're talking about the highest price that someone's willing to buy stock at right now is the bid, and the lowest price at which someone is willing to sell the stock is the ask. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's a big gap between them. And in many of the stocks that we buy at any moment, um, there's a there's a wide difference between them. And uh, we would prefer, I would prefer generally that there be a wide difference. Because then we can offer to buy, leave out a bid at a certain price, and hopefully people will come down to our bid. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, I think, in the investing world, they almost view that as a negative. They do view it as a negative, yeah. Why is that? They want the order executed now. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've made, the deci- I mean, they've made the decision to get in or out of the stock they want it to yeah, happen now. Sure. I can't tell you how often people... Um, when they find a stock that has a wide bid ask spread, even people who stay in a stock for a long time that I, I've talked to personally, uh, who on average own a stock for several years, it drives them crazy that it can go a week without their order being filled. Sure. They want it filled now and you know, that's Uh what they're used to. Yeah. It's almost like that. I mean, a couple episodes ago we were talking about, can you imagine if, um, your house got mm-hmm. quoted like every single month or whatever. People right. will probably be selling their houses a lot more than they do now, yeah, right? But exactly. when it comes to, um, you know, investing or whatever, and they see, you know, all the flashing and all the lights and CNBC and everything like that, it just kind of opens up a different, I guess, mindset when it comes to investing yeah. or, or, or money in general. Yeah. But the, so the other thing with the, with liquidity that's complicated, and this is what I was talking about with the 
um, the studies that talk about things like microcaps, it's actually pretty complicated to figure out how much of the effect you're getting is from something being a microcap or something being a value stock or, or something like that because a few of them are working together. And liquidity is a really good example of that because you ask, like, why is something illiquid? Um, in its history, something's illiquid. It's the most illiquid, usually at a time of um, unpopularity. So, like... Uh, I went on a podcast recently where I talked about a stock that we own, NACO, and uh, it had its most volume when there was a spinoff, so there was activity in the stock then, and then had fairly low volume for a while, and had very high volume when it had news that was positive or whatever, so the stock went up. But the periods in which the stock would go down without any news would have lower um, liquidity than at other times. Now, it's not an illiquid stock. It's on the New York Stock Exchange, so it's not that illiquid. But for a stock that size, it's not particularly liquid. And just in terms of timing, uh, whenever it gets the least attention is when it's the least liquid. And when it gets the most attention, it has to be when it's the most liquid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you think about price movement when it comes to illiquid stocks? Because it can be a little bit more all over the board, I guess you could say. Yeah. So price movement in illiquid stocks is going to tend to be higher volatility on like a daily basis. And certainly on each tick, each trade that happens yeah, is going to yeah. be much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but often over a period of a month, uh, certainly three months or a year or something, it's often lower. Mm-hmm. Basically, everything we own is lower um, volatility than the market. However, there's certainly many days, individual days, where it would be higher. But if you measure over a period of a year or something, it would be lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's common for illiquid stocks. Yeah. And do you think even in like the large cap space, people should focus more on illiquid companies? Yeah. Can you name yeah. a couple in the large cap space? Well, I mean, uh, sure. So uh, a reason why a stock would be illiquid would, the, in very big stocks, one of the biggest reasons is very, very high stock price. Okay. So easy one in there is Seaboard, mm-hmm. SEB. People recognize that company for its stock price only. If you've never heard of the company, the one thing you'll notice is if What's you see a, a ticker go by, like if you're watching CNBC or, or one of those channels or something, if you ever see a very high stock price pass by, because they're showing you every trade in uh, those sorts of stocks, you'll get a very high price. Do you know what the price yeah, is? Yeah, I just pulled up. So $4.6 uh, billion market cap. Mm-hmm. That's per share $3,955. There you go. So if you have several thousand dollars, um, and I invest in things in Japan, and that's very noticeable in Japan, that very high price stocks have that um, issue come up with them. Japan has uh, some different rule, uh, different exchanges in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. uh, different parts of the world sometimes have different round lot rules and things like that that can make things uh, more difficult that way. And it was a big deal in Japan. Sometimes if something was very high priced, they try mm-hmm. not to have that happen. Yeah, it's kind of like Berkshire, right? So he, I mean, you talk about how, um, you know, when you're uh, more liquid, right, it attracts mm-hmm. a different type of crowd. And that's right. probably why Warren never split the stock. He didn't want like traders to come in and, and sort of turn the stock over with that mindset of just like trading the stock, right? Absolutely. Well, we, I mean, does anyone actually probably like day trade Berkshire Hathaway? I mean, maybe the B well, shares, but definitely not the A shares, yeah, you know? Yeah. But they certainly didn't uh, 30 years ago or something. Yeah. They mm-hmm. may now that, you know, that you're in the index and that you have so much more liquidity and everything. But for a long part of his best performance, people didn't. Yeah. Um, we had a stock that split. And I was just going to bring that up. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And it was noticeable what happened with the split, right? Uh-huh. I was going to say why. So in, so we have a company that they did a, a stock split, right? Yeah. And, and it's an illiquid stock, but not a micro. And their reasoning was, yeah, that's like their, um, shareholder value proposition was splitting, was splitting the their stocks. I mean, I didn't, so why is that? I just, have you, have you ever seen that, that before? Number one? Yes. Okay. So why do they say that? Cause I, I haven't seen that. Cause they, they think that anything shareholders like, 
is shareholder value. So we're going to split the stock. So it's going to bring a different crowd to drive back up. I mean, essentially, is that it? I mean, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the only way that, I mean, I think Buffett said this before, but remember when you have liquidity, when you have action in your stock, the only way you can get new shareholders in is for the old shareholders to leave you. Sure. Yeah. So these companies are excited that, you know, their old shareholders are selling out. Yeah. But that's true. I mean, on that day that that happened, we could see that the stock went up. Uh, it didn't adjust properly for the split. In other words, it went up just because there was a split by several percent yeah. when you yeah, adjusted yeah. the, did the math on it. It was a lot. It was a lot. It yeah, was yeah. several percent. And uh, and then on top of that, that ends up getting fed into um, things that people are noticing the unusual price movement in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just also some aut- on message automated, boards. And yeah, stuff. yeah. There's yeah. automated <laughs> news things that pick up that there is a split. People say that because they split, that that's why the stock went up. Things like that. So yeah, it attracts people that way, and um, and it gets attention to it. And mm-hmm. they're they're right about that in terms of their. I mean, I disagree that splitting the stock does anything to create shareholder value. You know, now they mention things, you know, buying back stock and paying dividends and things, which yeah, are real yeah. things that you could do. Uh, but they're right that it gets action happening in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, companies that split their stock are generally going to be more liquid um, and their shares are going to turn over more. Any company that's covered more by analysts. That's a really big one is just to find any list of companies that doesn't really have analyst coverage. Mm-hmm. And you can create your own screens at certain sites. So if there's a site that allows you to use any of their variables to, cre- to you know, divide this into that and, and create your own uh, rules, then you can, you know, do any of these screens. So, what do you use? Uh, I think I use uh, for that portfolio one, two, three, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's their name. They renamed themselves at one point, so I hope that's their new name <laughs> and not their old name, but you can find it. Um, and uh, theirs is really good for creating those rules. However, I've heard lots of people tell me they don't like that site. So I should warn people that way. They say it's not user-friendly or something. I like it because it, you can use, create almost any rule you want, you know? Mm-hmm, sure. But there are other sites that will tell you how many analysts cover something. Um, it's always helpful to find ones that have very low analyst coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so high stock price. I, I remember doing certain screens before at a place I worked where the thing was to come up, come up with some ideas about could you mathematically find certain things um, like computerized without me having to go through a list that ha- have very, uh, are, are in a sense just underfollowed, right? And some of the things that are common are um, especially the number of shares outstanding versus the age of the company. That's a really easy one to do. So, I mean, it's not it's easy on that kind of screen or most things won't tell you that, but it, it's an easy way to know if a stock is overlooked. So companies that tend to be so the least overlooked companies of all are ones that have recently gone public and have a lot of shares outstanding. The most overlooked ones are companies that are older and that have the lowest number of shares outstanding. Low shares outstanding mean you're going to end up with a high price uh, and things like that. So like if something goes public recently and it's like a penny stock, mm-hmm. that's like the most not overlooked it sure. can be. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I really want to stress that in all these studies about microcaps and stuff, I think they're very misleading in terms of not steering people away from liquid microcaps, yeah, which, which is, are very dangerous. When we talk about that's more of a trading vehicle, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I think, where the negative uh, perception of microcaps, in my opinion, comes yeah. from is because you see all these like crappy like pump and dumps or mm-hmm. penny stocks or whatever it is. And um, they're really just trading vehicles where they're just diluting a right. bunch of shareholders and just pumping up stocks and issuing all these weird filings. And um, so I would definitely agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of something that was created over time to take advantage of the fact that years ago, you know, going back to Ben Graham days, 
um, a lot of stocks went public at the same basic price, right? And then what would happen is they would eventually split their shares and things like that. But if you ever saw a stock that was trading at $5, $1, pennies on the dollar, uh, it meant this was once a company that had been a lot more expensive and had dropped a lot in price. And so by taking advantage of that, so that there could be a big recovery, right? This is a big turnaround thing. Well, taking advantage of that, they started the whole, you know, penny stock type thing, which Got is playing it. into that as if, you know, this is something that could go up a lot. Yeah. Because it seems in percentage terms that you're thinking, oh, well, if it's 15 cents, it could much more easily go to a dollar sure, fifty sure, yeah. than $15 could go up, you know, like that mm -hmm. sort of thinking. So, uh, yeah, and, and those are just totally different than illiquid stocks there. And I think a lot of the performance uh, comes from illiquid microcaps. And I know that because a lot of academic things will sort them out because they're afraid that people couldn't really get those returns. That's a big part of it is that a lot of studies – omit the most illiquid stocks which are often had the best returns because they'd say you know a fund couldn't buy them and things like that mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that's true uh, it's a little complicated because we talked about the bid ask thing where you know um you put the bid in and see if it happens sometimes you won't get any volume but it's also wrong to say that you have to pay the spread because we don't pay the spread when no. we buy things so so do you what do, what are your thoughts on the argument like for example getting back to microcaps mm -hmm. right Microcaps are microcaps for a reason, right? They're not going to yeah. be big companies. Um, and you could sort of bring that to the illiquid. I'm just kind of putting the shoe on the other mm -hmm. foot, right? Um, illiquid stocks are illiquid stocks because they're crummy companies or whatever, right? They're less popular mm -hmm. companies. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, sometimes that's true, mm -hmm. but it depends on the company. Um, I think people will be surprised at how... how uh, most people, when they're looking at stocks, are not looking far enough back in the history of the company. So it really may surprise them how much the current perception of the company, by current I could mean five or ten years, um, is so different from what it once was and what it will be. Mm -hmm. um, you, you really be surprised at that. I know you did a podcast recently with um, Luke where you talked about um, a, a microcap thing, but he mentioned that I had talked about Arc Restaurants once, yeah, yeah, which traded at a very low EBITDA multiple or EBIT multiple too uh, until it started paying a dividend. And then it was completely revalued. Really? And that happens. I mean, that happens with all sorts of things. Uh, that happens with very, very large companies, too. Uh, today, people would be shocked to know that, you know, within the last 10 years, Nintendo, which is a very popular stock, um, traded very close to net cash. And that was because there was a perception of, you know, its latest console wasn't a success. And the perception was with smartphones. You know, everything that the company's IP and stuff won't make any money or any of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, that all turned around and they had certain things on phones that were popular. Um, but, you know, the perceptions can change just so much. And that happens especially with really illiquid things where the perceptions change. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how often that's the case. The most common sort of uh, question that we get if I'm talking about a stock idea or a stock that we own or whatever is okay, but are you, you know, what's the risk that it'll just stay like this forever? Sure, yeah. Basically is it like, it's a, like, why will it always trade at six times earnings? Yeah. 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 And the answer is no. I mean, I don't know why it won't always trade at six times earnings, but from doing it for a while, I've yeah. learned that no. Well, it's like things get cheap. Other people figure it out. Maybe they build up cash more. That's right. Different crowd. I mean, it just kind of works. Either they'll out. start losing money. You know, either things will get worse or something. Yeah. Or if things keep proceeding at the business the way they are, people will value it higher eventually. It's kind of like uh, Joel Greenblatt in his class notes. He said, why does this happen? He says, I don't know and I don't care. I just know yeah. that it's going to continue to happen and I want to just like exploit it. Yeah. You know, talking about like the whole, the why is this cheap, you know? Right. And, you know, and sometimes there are explanations like when there's a legitimate business explanation, like this company always 
grows slower than its peers, then yeah, it can always trade a lower P. Mm-hmm. But when the only reason is this company is less liquid or whatever, eventually it will get more liquid. Yeah. Cool. Well, that is the end of the first part of our podcast. And we're going to try something out now. So hopefully this doesn't make people upset. We have a couple more questions that we're going to be going over. We're going to be answering them on YouTube. So the extended part of the podcast is on YouTube. So go to YouTube and type in focused compounding. You'll see a picture of myself. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to be doing the part two to um, to this podcast. We're done with the liquid part, kind of. But we're going to be answering two other questions that are, are kind of similar or kind of related um, on YouTube. So I want to thank everybody for listening to us on the podcast. If you're not going to join us on YouTube, um, if you do like the work we're doing here, a rating and review goes a long way. And you can follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound to um, send me some questions and we'll answer them on the show. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. We'll see everybody else on YouTube. All right. Is that good you think or what? That's great. All right, let's roll with it. All right, we are back in the YouTube land. Mm -hmm. It's the first time we're doing this. So we're going to continue on with our Illiquid podcast and we're going to be taking two more questions um, which were kind of related and we're going to be answering them on YouTube. So this person says, do you guys buy leaps and or sell calls? You guys are big fans of Joel Greenblatt and I was wondering if there's a strategy that you have considered using. Uh, We've considered warrants. We have not considered um, buying leaps. I don't believe we've ever considered that. No. No, and we would never probably buy them for the the managed accounts anyways. Um, so yeah, I don't even think that we would have the possibility in manager accounts usually that we probably don't even set them up to do options trading. No, no we just do uh, I think warrants are treated as equity for those sorts of purposes. They yeah. are. Yep. Yep. Why is that? I mean, even before I guess, uh, manager accounts excluded, have you ever, you know, uh, used leaps to purchase a stock or uh, play have, a stock or whatever? No, I have not. I have often suggested it to people many, many times that they do it, not me. Uh, as a psychological thing. So sometimes people want to buy a stock I really think they shouldn't buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and to convince them, uh, if there's leaps or something, I'll try to get them, encourage them to uh, take a very small position in the leaps, which the upside would be the same as in the common stock, right? But they're risking a much smaller downside in the sense that they're buying much less of it because it's much more leveraged. Sure. Now, that could, of course, go to zero, but because they see this big upside in the stock, whereas I'm trying to tell them, well, there is the possibility it goes to zero. So, I mean, the reason for doing leaps would be that, would be that there's not as much downside protection as you would normally want. I don't see the point of buying leaps in a stock that has strong downside protection because Mm -hmm. you're giving up the protection you get from a common stock, which is... You know, you can own it indefinitely, and eventually it'll retain its value that way. Leaps expire at some point. Sure. Um, and so you have the possibility of going to zero. Uh, the appeal of leaps is obviously you're using much less capital to get a big upside. So, you know. Um, you got to be right, though. I mean, if you're going to buy a leap, I mean, do people typically buy them out of the money calls or in the money calls? How do they think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, because out of the money calls, I mean, they're literally priced mm-hmm. to expire worthless. Yeah. Right? A lot of them are. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, a lot of them will expire worthless. Absolutely, yeah. And I should say that I think there's a difference here, which is that, um, uh, and you know a lot more about options than I do, but I would say that the ability to price options uh, accurate, efficiently in the market is, becomes less and less as we're talking about really um, long-term options. Mm-hmm. So if you're an investor, what you want is the absolute, what you want is to find something that has very, very long-term options, um, which is sort of the idea of what we're talking about with leaps. Um, and it, you want it to be something that you understand the stock really well that way. Um, I, th- you know, it's a thing that Joel Greenblatt did. He talked about, and um, you can be a stock market genius. Uh, I don't. I think 
there's enough to do just buying common stocks yeah. uh, that are, you know, uh, we focus on overlooked common stocks, but things like that. Uh, is it possible that I would look at leaps if I was only managing money in like the S&P 500 type companies? Yeah, possibly. That might make more sense. Why is that? Because those tend to be harder. I think it's harder to buy and hold S&P 500 type companies and perform well. I think there are moments where they get very mispriced. You know, a moment of crisis, bad news, whatever. I could see that. And it would make sense to buy an option in it um, that way. Um, they don't stay mispriced for very long. Do they, do they buy leaps um, with a thought of, of exercising those calls? Or is it really just to capture the price difference on the option? Uh, I think that they're planning to buy leaps so that they... Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Mm, I don't know. I mean, no, I'd be just curious. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing, so I guess the only time that I've really, um, talked to someone much about leaps in recent times. So not going back to things like you can be a stock market genius, yeah. uh, have all had to do with, uh, banks. They've all been major banks. So what was the reason behind it? Uh, they were on, they were, it was the same reason that, uh, if I remember right, the logic behind buying Wells Fargo leaps was in the book. Um, basically it's that they're investors who are value investors. Mm -hmm. They think they understand something, but they're just scared of banks. Got and it. so I think they're buying a much smaller position in leaps than they would in common stock because they have a concern about, uh, banks. I found a lot of value investors like may completely ignore banks altogether, are worried about banks, will sell banks very quickly. They just have a thing about um, because the risks that are, you know, they feel like they may not understand banks that well, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like in the big short, mm -hmm. right? Didn't those Cornwall Capital, didn't they use options yeah. to sort of, yep. but the way that they structure them was, I mean, I guess it's probably the same line of thinking, right? You limit your downside, even though I guess it's technically limited in common stocks right but then right. they would get multiples of the upside is, is that the way that they structured it i, I don't remember uh, yeah well what i mean is that anyone i've talked to who's used leaps has basically their value investor who's like has normally kind of concentrated positions maybe not as concentrated as i do but fairly concentrated and they're like they wouldn't buy something that's less than five or ten percent of their portfolio yeah but they really want to bet on this bank or something sure. yeah but they're just afraid to make it five or ten percent of their portfolio so they buy the leaps got it Cool. Good question. Next question and last question for today's podcast. It says, given that stocks generally remain highly correlated and or sensitive to Fed interest rate policy, does the Focus Compounding team view merger arbitrage as a way to buy a way of bypassing wider market volatility? Also, any views on merger arb as it applies to overlooked slash illiquid small cap space? Thanks. Um, we don't do merger arbitrage. I have looked at some things, including for the managed accounts, that um, would be some sort of arbitrage. Uh, two there, do you find a lot of opportunities still? No. Like today? Yeah. No. Uh, two companies in the space that we look at uh, are liquidating. So we don't own them. And I looked at them and passed on them. But mm -hmm. yeah, they're liquidating. Um, it, they're, they can be very inefficiently priced. I, in one case, the company was liquidating it, said it sold something, and it was its major asset. And it was far, far less than the market cap of the company. I don't want to say the company because I don't want to cause any movement in the stock or anything. But, yeah. um, and it released it in an 8K. So I guess maybe because it didn't put it on a press release that not everyone read it or whatever. But basically, let's say the company had uh, you know, a $15 million market cap and it just told you that it sold its biggest business for $9 million, right? Um, that should really affect the stock a lot. Sure. And it didn't. And in a in a big um, stock that there is merger arbitrage going on, and that would affect in a huge way. We didn't know what they'd sell that for, and they sold it for way less than the market cap of the company. Um, so I haven't really done arbitrage things. Uh, in the past, have I ever 
done it all. Um, I have done some sort of, I guess, event-based stuff in that I have bought things that were liquidating. I have also bought things um, that were where you could buy less than a round lot, so like 99 shares, and the company would pay you a guaranteed cash amount, which would be greater than what you were buying. Uh, it used to be a big area for very small value investors where you can make a guaranteed return. You could only make, you can only invest a few thousand dollars usually, uh, but you had a guaranteed return that was very high. And so I did that. Lots of other people did that, and I was probably in dozens of those. Um, they don't exist much today, and you can't do anything with big money for them. But yeah, it was basically guaranteed money. I think I mentioned in shorting things that technically I've shorted stuff before. Yeah, that was many years ago, and it's owning a convertible preferred stock while being short the common. Again, it was very rare that I did it, and again, it's like basically guaranteed money in the sense that the common stock can only fall by a few percent um, versus what you can convert the per- the preferred for. In all those cases, the common stock isn't paying a dividend. The preferred is paying a dividend. There's just a bunch of things that you know you're going to do okay in that. So, like, if anyone ever asks, have I shorted a stock? Technically, yes, but not when I'd have to go and buy it. Not, like, based on valuation or anything. And I would, right. never, have, and would never have to buy it. The yeah. intent was always to close it by converting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, that wraps up this podcast here today. I want to thank everybody for tuning in with us on the Focus Compounding Podcast and then coming over here to YouTube and um, listening to a few more questions. We're going to be probably sticking with this format in the future. So if you do want to follow along, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and uh, go ahead and give us a rating and review. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.